0: One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is Ritala Lashar, and you're listening to The Real Story from the BBC World Service. Former first ladies, religious groups, and the images of tearful children being torn apart from their parents—these were some of the factors which combined to fuel opposition to the Trump administration's policy of separating thousands of migrant children from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border. The president's now signed an executive order ending the practice. Across the Atlantic, Germany is also struggling with migrants. Chancellor Merkel is in a battle with her interior minister Horst Seehofer, who wants to turn away migrants. At the country's border if they've already registered elsewhere in the EU. And on Sunday, Mrs Merkel will be one of 10 EU leaders who'll meet in Brussels to try to agree on a plan to curb illegal migration to Europe and to restrict the movement of asylum seekers between countries. But as record numbers of both legal and illegal migrants up sticks and move around the globe public concerns about national security, cultural change and economic upheaval justified? Or are these fears being found by politicians hoping to gain easy votes? Should countries get tough or adjust to the new reality of a world on the move? That's The Real Story this week. Well Justin Guest is an assistant professor of public policy at George Mason University in Virginia. He joins us on our panel from our Washington studio. Astrid Zebath is a senior migration fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the US, and she joins us from Berlin. And with me here in London are Drew Lickerman of Republicans Overseas Scotland and Violeta Marino Lax. She's a senior lecturer in law at Queen Mary University of London. Welcome to you all. Thank you. To begin with, I want to think about why people are on the move. According to the UN last year, there was a record number of refugees, but countries are also coping with economic migrants. Justin Guest.
1: Yeah, at this point right now, most of the world's migrants are in fact economic migrants, at least those that are admitted to different countries. However, what is changing is this enormous number of humanitarian migrants that are developing. What's particularly been challenging for states, Ritla, is that the distinction between what an economic migrant is or what a migrant is and what a refugee is has become increasingly foggier. The 1951 convention is quite clear what a refugee is. It's someone who is being persecuted on the, on the basis of their race, religion, beliefs, descent, ideologies. However, it does not necessarily always include the people who are clearly involuntarily migrating from their home countries today. What you have is a class of non-refugee, involuntary migrants that are nevertheless humanitarian cases but don't necessarily fit the international definition. And this is what's complicating the admissions of these people across the world.
2: Astra do you think that's
0: a picture that applies to Europe
2: as well? Well, absolutely. We are currently uh, trying to figure out, well, how do you deal with these, uh, some call them complex flows or mixed migration flows. And uh, hence you also see some of the proposals that have been put out now, just in the last couple of days, also by the EU Council to see how can you actually externalize some of the asylum procedures to also disentangle some of these movements. But of course, it's very tricky. I mean, take, for example, uh, Libya. A lot of people before um, you had the intervention a lot of people came there to work and with the interventions and really the very unstable position of the country as as it is in right now uh, people were also faced with having to move and so while they weren't really refugees in the beginning they were labor migrants they then became refugees so it's it's a very complex picture that we are addressing as is unfortunately always the uh, the case with migration.
0: Violeta Moreno-Lax we can talk about how we think about the Law and perhaps reforming that refugee convention later in the program, but should we in general be more precise in our definitions, would that help us to understand what's happening around the world?
3: I'm not very sure that actually it's a matter of uh, definitions drawing on on the mixed flows and the complexity of the flows that we are faced with today. We should remind ourselves that all of them, whatever their condition and the you know legal terms or, or, or however characterized are covered by what it's called the principle of non-refoulement, which is the principle protecting persons from being returned to situations of danger. And that applies across the board to refugees under the 51 Convention and anybody else.
0: Drew Lickerman, we've talked about so far already refugees, people facing danger, but President Trump appears to have tapped into a real public fear about people arriving, certainly in the US, Why do you think those fears have such resonance with
4: the public? I think uh, these fears resonate so much with the public because specifically in the U.S., the open border in the U.S. essentially has created a vacuum. The only people it benefits are human smugglers looking to traffic women and children or looking to traffic people across the border. And it's made cities like Atlanta, it's made cities like Dallas and Houston and southern cities more dangerous because you have these human smugglers that are bringing people into the cities for sex work or for, you know, exploitation reasons. I I think these are the main reasons people should be afraid of refugees and migrants. I'm I'm not as much against some of the economic arguments brought up, but I think um, human smugglers are the main concern about the open border in the U.S.
0: Justin guest, Drew Lickerman there is talking about an open border. How open is the U.S. border?
4: I'm not quite sure
1: which country Drew is referring to. There is no open border. We have a border that is actually reasonably good at constraining immigration and admitting immigrants in an orderly fashion. There is not these enormous flows that we've seen since the 1980s and 1990s. Now, is it managed well? Absolutely not. But this sort of carnival of smugglers and sex traffickers simply is an anomaly to the situation, what's going on right now. What we're talking about are families with their children desperately trying to leave homelands that are characterized by civil strife, gang violence and economic hardship trying to move. And then meanwhile, we have a number of admitted immigrants that are coming in on a legal basis, that are coming in under a system of admissions that is actually quite orderly. So to hyperbolize the situation is precisely what has inflamed this debate, but also what's also uh, benighted people by depictions that are simply untrue. More pertinently to this actually is the perception that this is all unauthorized entry that is being caused by this in the way that Drew just depicted, when in fact actually the majority of undocumented immigrants in the United States today are actually overstaying visas that were obtained in completely legal fashion or violating those visas. That is the vast majority of undocumented migration today. So there isn't this sort of parade of people crossing rivers into the deserts, entering into into the United States from the south.
0: Drew Lickerman is actually what's happening, being misrepresented.
4: I don't think it's being misrepresented at all. I mean, okay, it's a slight hyperbole, especially right now saying it's an open border. The U.S., it's not where it should be. It's not a completely open border. But, you know, it it is a fact that thousands of people are trafficked across the border every year in the U.S. to be exploited for criminal, for gang reasons, for drug reasons. And, you know, I think the first step to solving the migration crisis specifically in the U.S. is strengthening U.S. border security, strengthening visa checks. And, you know, I, I think what's going on with separations of family, I, I, I don't support that. And I do recognize there are legitimate refugees fleeing Central America, South America coming to the US. It's a totally different situation between the two of them, but the people legitimately fleeing, they're being abused also in the process. They're the ones, you know, human traffickers are exploiting them, trafficking them and putting them in extremely dangerous conditions, taking them on very long, dangerous journeys.
1: Now, these are precisely the people who are being punished. And and frankly, to state that this was slight hyperbole, I commend Drew for at least acknowledging this because what it is is a misrepresentation of the situation. One could even go as far as saying it's a lie. And this is what's been actually sort of intoxicating the American debate, but also the European debate.
0: One thing that uh, there is agreement on is that electorates are increasingly concerned about the increasing numbers of people arriving at borders, be they uh, migrants, be they economic migrants or indeed refugees. And one man... Who literally got it in the neck from a voter is Andreas Holstein, who's the mayor of Altena, a town of a little under 20,000 people in Western Germany. Now, in November, he was attacked with a kitchen knife by a local resident who was angry about the welcome that Holstein had shown to refugees. I asked him what happened.
5: Uh, I entered a kebab shop after a session of our town council because it was so late was willing to have a kebab even for my wife waiting at home and then there was a man entering the shop shortly after me and he asked me are you the mayor and uh, when i said yes why he put his hands into a bag he had and took out a knife a kitchen knife what is used for cutting meat and crying you brought 200 foreigners to Altena. So uh, this was the beginning. Then he was standing behind me with a knife at my neck. Then uh, he said again that he would like to kill me. And the other persons in the room, the owner of the kebab shop, begged him uh, to put away the knife, but he didn't. And so I catched his arm and both shop owners helped me. So they saved really, in my opinion, my life.
0: Obviously, an attack like this is shocking, but were you aware that your actions as mayor in welcoming refugees had perhaps provoked tensions amongst some of the residents of the town?
5: Of course, there might always be people who are critical to your politics, and uh, I think this is normal.
0: So tell us about your actions as mayor. What had you agreed to do? You've actually won a National Integration Prize. What were your actions?
5: We, as a little town, sleepy little town, we thought that we can manage a little bit more refugees and we we did in the moment actually. So we made the decision to take 100 more people, which happened really after some bureaucratic problems in um, on the 23rd of October 2015. And from this moment, we got 100 more refugees on a voluntary base in town and. What
0: were the fears of those who weren't happy about the refugees arriving?
5: There is an emotional problem. We now have less refugees in Germany. We have really uh, some problems, but not as big as in in 2015 and 2016. Uh, But this question is an emotional one.
0: That's Andreas Holstein, who was the mayor of Altena. Astrid Zeebath, we've already had a flavour of of the tensions in the US, there you get a flavour of the tensions in Europe. What is the appropriate political response in a situation like that?
2: Well, of course, migration or also refugee movements is it's always something that triggers a lot of, of anxiety. But when Ms. Merkel opened the borders, this was an act of saying, well, we need to stand by those who are in need of protection. And this is currently also within the debate to see, well, who are the ones that are in need of protection and um, to, to really help them. And we do see that there are, are also still a lot of people who are standing by that if you ask in public opinion polls, are you in favor of granting protection to those who are fleeing war and other situations that endanger them, then people are in support. So I think what the mayor was also describing is that by and large, there's also that fear that the people are not coming for the right reasons and that we need to be able to better address that. On the other hand, I mean, it's it's very clear parties like the AfD, yes, the numbers have gone down, as the mayor pointed out, but they are clearly playing on the fears. This is Um, a far
0: right party that's been very successful in Germany in recent elections.
2: Exactly. And of course, we know that there's interest of those parties to keep that topic Alive in the debate and some public opinion polls find that the public is actually not just concerned with immigration, believe it or not, but uh, you also have the uh, social and issues and other living conditions like education, housing. But I don't want to say that there's not also concerns about newcomers to the country. Certainly, that exists. Um, it's always with migration, always when there's new groups coming. There's the situation that you fear and also those who have voted for AfD or, or others who are that they're feeling that they're being left out or left behind. And it's a mixture. You can't really pinpoint to one reason why we're v- seeing this. Violetta Marillanax,
0: is it possible to talk about definitions or persuade people to think more about definitions
3: in a political environment where people are fearful? Probably a bit of context would be quite helpful. So in in the numbers that we've been given, right, in uh, Astana, 20,000 inhabitants host 200 refugees. That's 1% of the population, right? 1% is really nothing. If you compare it to global numbers in terms of refugees and other displaced persons, which reached today to the figure of 68.5 million of which 90% are hosted within the region of origin in Africa, Asia and Central America.
0: Drew Lickerman, was that a lesson in a sense that Donald Trump learned this week with the separation of families, where actually, while there may be antipathy towards migrants in general, actually, that was a policy too far even perhaps for his support base?
4: There's a very select small few that, you know, actually support permanently ripping apart families from each other, I think even... Even temporarily, which e- is essentially
0: what, what was being discussed.
4: Even te- even for weeks at a time, temporarily. You know, I don't think Trump himself and I don't think you know, any Republican senator or Republican congressman that I saw for the most part really supported that policy. I think the policy came into place where, yes, it was cancelled because of an executive order, which Trump said, I can't do anything about it. But the matter of the fact is this executive order probably doesn't have too much legal standing Justin Guest, when you think about what's
0: happening in the US, do you think it is actually migration and the movement of people that is at issue? Or has this become a prism through which people complain about and, and express their fears about economic issues that are related more widely to the question of globalisation? Is it slightly different? Well, there are obviously parallels, but there are, are there also big differences to what's happening in
1: Europe? It's actually a little bit of both, Ridla. Uh, it, it is a, a, a prism through which people are expressing fears about feeling truly out of control over a country they feel like they once understood – and that they once dominated. Um, This is a situation that intermingles uh, economic concerns with social concerns, with concerns about um, the state of identity politics in one's country. Many of Trump's supporters and supporters of radical right parties in the United Kingdom and Europe um, are concerned that they have been left behind and they feel nostalgic for an era that has since passed. And what immigration does is it provides the full polemical package. You have a bunch of people who are foreign and un known, you, uh, that are potentially taking jobs and lowering wages, at least according to the far-right's rhetoric, which has largely been true, proven to be uh, false, if not questionable. Um, you have a group of people that's changing quite literally the complexion of one's society, the languages that are spoken, the accommodations required. And really what new research is showing is that it's not necessarily the amount of immigrants that really unnerves people. It's actually the pace of change. Mm-hmm. Astrazibov?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we um, are seeing this as well, and of course, you could say these are the forces of globalization. But it's really the the pace um, of the uh, of the change that I also think is uh, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable for people um, because it is in such a rapid time. I mean, when we look in 2015, even though on the migration researcher side you could see this coming, but um, I think it it took people really. By surprise, and um, even though, if you ask, well, how has your life been personally affected? A lot of people will say, well, they don't really notice um, it too much, but it's since it's also constantly in the news. I mean, um, you you also see that people take that this is a number one or should be a concern, but. You can, of course, in some cities, you do see it. Um, you do see that there are more people from from other countries. And um, when we look into the eastern uh, parts of Germany, even though there you have the lowest numbers of migrants and refugees, um, people claim that they can still see it in, in, the, in the streets. Um, there are different types of shops uh, that are, are popping up um, with Arabic being heard and... So I think the pace is really something to look at, and um, as as Justin was mentioning, it's it's although it's not just the pace, I do think it's also this um, status threat that. Um, you do think that you're losing out um, and that that others are now coming up and yeah, taking your position.
0: So as we've been discussing, Germany's politics have been upended really by the concerns about migration levels. The far-right AFD party won seats in Parliament for the first time last year following Angela Merkel's 2015 decision to allow more than a million migrants to enter Germany. And this week, her stance on migrations come under fire again. She was given two weeks to agree to a tougher enforcement of EU migration rules, with European leaders, or face a rebellion from her own government. Now, currently, most migrants enter the European Union via Greece or Italy, and after they're processed as refugees, they're meant to stay put. But many have been moving to other EU states, including Germany. And Chancellor Merkel says Germany needs to be flexible with the situation because of the huge pressures on Italy and Greece. But her own Interior Minister, Horst Seehofer of the Christian Social Union, the CSU, which is the Bavarian sister party to her own CDU, the Christian Democratic Union, says Germany shouldn't let these people in. Well, I've been speaking to Monica Holmeyer, who's a CSU member of the European Parliament. She told me that German voters want change, and I asked her why.
6: There are a part of the population have really cultural fears. Others have the fear that if we are accepting so many migrants, as we did in 2015, that we are no more able to integrate them really and uh, that more banlieue no-go zones or ethnic ghettos could be created, and that this would be really very negative. The discussion is about so-called economic migrants. When they are in Germany, often try to go into the social systems and not always able to be successful in the labour market. For this, we have to try to find other solutions. We are asking for these uh, other solutions. That's part of the so-called master plan. But by focusing on issues
0: like that at a time when Germany's economy is doing very well, you're a wealthy country, uh, is your party simply pandering to the policies of the far-right party, which is essentially challenging you in your home state of
6: Bavaria? We have discussed this uh, since 25 years, and CSU always took the lead in, in, in those areas, because if you are not listening to the population in a serious way, and not in a populistic way, we are in favor of European solutions. We are supporting European solutions. We are not saying close the border. We just say control them against irregular migrants having no chance to be an asylum refugee at the end. Even if
0: Europe draws up the drawbridge in some metaphorical sense, what is the longer term solution to the migrant question? People aren't going to stop coming, are they?
6: We have to do much more on the African continent, not only to stop people there, but to give them more perspectives. This is not only the duty of Germany, this is the duty of everything, even if Germany has because of the, its good economic situation, a stronger duty to help there. As you can see, it, we are paying the, most of the development policy and humanitarian aid policy help. The second step is then to really control the migration flows. So this means if there are refugees, then it's better to do it by via resettlement. So That we already control on the African continent who is persecuted and not, and then to bring them. On legal and safe ways, if we wish to have economic migrants in certain member states, uh, this is very different in the member states. For Germany, we will accept this and we wish this. Then we have to find their legal ways to do it. And uh, then the third step is in the European Union to have a fair share burden, not to give the, uh, the 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 responsibility only to Greece or to Italy. And those two member states are reacting then in the way how they are. Doing doing it now, sending all the migrants in direction of Germany, Sweden, Luxembourg or wherever or France. So uh, we have to find a fair solution in the European Union, tackling the migration problem and bringing it really in a good kind of organization, not being so chaotic as it has been before.
0: Monica Holmeyer of Germany's CSU in talking there about her views about possible solutions to the kind of mass migration we've seen in Europe in recent years. And just to remind you, you're listening to The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, we're asking how wealthy countries should respond to record levels of global migration. Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives. and The Places We Live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at the Story at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story. We're joined by Justin Guest, an assistant professor of public policy at George Mason University in Virginia. He's in Washington. By Astrid Zebath, a senior migration fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the US. She joins us from Berlin. Here in London, Drew Lickerman of Republicans Overseas Scotland and Violetta Marino-Lacks, and she's a senior lecturer in law at Queen Mary University here in London. Well, earlier in the programme, we discussed perhaps what's making people move continents and countries, often risking their lives on perilous journeys. Coming up, we're going to be asking if there are legal and political answers to this new dynamic. Violetta Marino-Lax, let's talk about refugees in particular. Now, according to the UN, last year 68.5 million people were displaced and this marks a new high. Who are these people and where are they?
3: Thank you for for that question. I think it's actually quite pertinent with the World Refugee Day being so recent. Where are they? 90% of them are in developing countries and only roughly 10% are in developed countries. Countries And in the European Union, the estimates are between 2 and 2.5%. So actually, when we speak about refugee crises or migration crises, I think the numbers should be put into the right perspective. Ban Ki-moon, actually the Secretary General of the UN, before stepping down, in 2015 mentioned that this was a crisis of solidarity, it was not really a crisis of, of refugees. And I think this is actually very well put and very well characterized within the European Union. People coming to Europe come as irregular migrants. And this is true for the US, Canada and Australia. So all the developed countries have a sort of ban on asylum seekers coming through regular and safe channels. There are no visas for refugees. There are no humanitarian pathways. There are no means of access to asylum lawfully. And this is way, when we say we need to be tough on irregular migration, actually, the target is or at least intermingled with those to whom we owe protection. What law doesn't provide for is how those coming should be shared across uh, different jurisdictions, and that's part of the bigger problem. So I don't know if... I mean, where people are and where they come from, it's an important question, but I think to get the full picture of the problem, we should be looking at how they come, and how they are received. So a lack of solidarity and a lack of legal pathways compounds the problem that we see.
0: Justin Guest, you mentioned the Refugee Convention earlier in the programme. It dates back to 1951. It offers protection to all refugees, but is it hopelessly out of date?
1: It's out of date in the sense that it doesn't cover certain types of involuntary migration today and it's not necessarily out of date but perhaps it needs supplements for how the world can govern it in a coordinated fashion. And this is really the work that is attempting to be done at the United Nations as we speak. They're in the seventh round of uh, negotiations for a global compact for migrants and refugees And unfortunately, the story has not been great. There's been a lot of resistance from states to agreeing to new measures – And frankly, most of the measures that have been agreed to risk derogating on the progress that has been made on human rights up until now.
0: So what do you mean? Give us an example.
1: So there are already questions about whether the – we we mentioned earlier in the show about the principle of non-refoulement, the principle that someone should not be ever returned to a country in which their life is in danger or where there are risks of human rights abuses like cruelty – torture for instance. So right now that is actually a subject of negotiation at the United Nations these days. And that's actually a pity because non-refoulement does not only apply to refugees, it applies to everyone. And so really, the state of the negotiations isn't good. So whether or not it's outdated or not, the question has now fallen mostly to the national level. And that's why these politics have arisen, because there haven't been no global solutions.
0: Astrid Zebath, from what you've seen in Germany, the way in which the arrival of refugees has caused resentment, doesn't it suggest that actually trying to find a global solution to something which has very strong political
2: national consequences is going to be very, very tricky? The challenge, um, as also my colleagues here have pointed out, is that it is a global phenomenon. So you cannot it cannot be solved by one state or it cannot be solved nationally. This is something that people have to understand. And 66% in Germany are actually in support of a European solution. Even now, this was a recent poll just last week. So even in this heated debate, whether there should be a national approach, as Mr. Seehofer um, is proposing, our interior minister, or Merkel who's still pushing for the European solution. It is still, I think, really clear that it cannot be one country that solves it. So we need to coordinate and the global compacts, even though they're non-binding, could at least be setting some standards.
0: Is there a solution in thinking about where migrants are coming from and perhaps refugees in particular trying to process people in the places where they leave from. I'm thinking about trying to stop perhaps those perilous journeys across the Mediterranean. We heard in the last half hour Monica Holmeyer talk about the possibility of having processing centres in Africa. Mm -hmm. Violetta, do you think that's something that could work? Uh,
3: No, I don't think it could work. You would require mass detention of people and that goes against European standards under the European Convention on Human Rights and the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, it feeds um, actually very difficult to maintain dignified reception standards in Europe. And we have seen that in the hotspots in Italy and in Greece. Imagine how difficult it could be in countries which are beyond our reach and jurisdiction. And we have an example because actually the EU-Turkey deal does a little bit of that. And we have seen how Erdogan has been implementing reception conditions for refugees in detention camps. This is a a
0: deal where most refugees stay within Turkey and they're, they're not allowed to come forward into Europe.
3: Exactly. And when we say North Africa, I mean, nobody really dares pronouncing it. But what they are thinking about is Libya, drawing on the Memorandum of Understanding that Italy signed in February 2017 with the Government of National Accord. Libya, by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Italy itself, was denounced as hell. So if those are the conditions within which people are going to be held, I don't think that's practicable, feasible politically or, um, as a policy option, and it would be utterly illegal.
2: Yes, I mean, this has been, a concept has been around for for a long time. Um, I mean, our former interior minister, Mr. Schiele, in 2005, I think he already brought up this concept. Now, just last week, um, or this week, it was uh, called disembarkment platform. So that's another way of, of saying, well, we want some centers somewhere outside of the EU. And yeah, as my colleague just before was saying, there are a lot of concerns with this. Um, I fully understand that people want to find a way, well, how can we process, how can we offer also safe and regular and legal pathways and for those seeking protection? Because it is, of course, an irony that you have to really risk your life to then seek protection. So I, I understand you want to find some ways and, and policies to do that. However, with these centers or disembarkment platforms, as they're called right now, there There's really a a lot of challenging questions coming up. I mean, the legal problems are one, um, because you can only uh, return or deport to those countries where there are no harm, where there's no harm. But also, which country would actually agree to host something like that? Um, uh, If you pay them enough
0: money, they might be willing to.
2: Well, but you have already these discussions with, and, and these discussions have been there, and Morocco and, and others have said, well, look, we don't want to be the ones solving your problems. We're not even sure what, what we're talking about here. Um, I mean, yes, UNHCR and IOM have now said that they would kind of administer this, um, but usually outside of the EU, how do you administer EU law? Then also, I mean, just to offer money, you have to imagine there are a lot of people would be in these camps or whatever. And uh, how do you sort this out? Also, they could also draw a lot of traffickers or smugglers to these centres. We are seeing also the situations in Libya, but also, I mean, Australia on the islands, uh, how they've proposed to do this. Uh, The humanitarian situation is really dire.
0: Justin Guest, you've heard the, the reasons why it couldn't work in Europe. What about for the United States? Should there be more infrastructure perhaps on the Mexican side of the border before we start talking about walls?
1: Well, the United States does partner with the Mexican government quite extensively actually in uh, trying to restrict undocumented immigration to the United States. The, the majority of undocumented immigrants today are not Mexican. They're coming through the southern border. They're actually Central Americans who course through Mexico in order to enter El Norte. There actually is quite a bit of partnership with the Mexican government despite the way uh, the relationship is often depicted between Mr. Trump and, and his counterparts to the south. There could certainly be more. It would be helpful to have a better relationship with the Mexicans at this point. The Mexican government also could be pressured to do more because they should be practicing what they preach. The Mexican government is known to be a fierce advocate on behalf of the rights of immigrants. But oftentimes they fall short in actually practicing what they preach at home. And so, yeah, there are solutions that could come through international cooperation. And as uh, Astrid and and Violeta have already mentioned, uh, this is a global problem requiring a global – or certainly a global solution and and certainly regional developments are are welcome progress.
0: Drew Lickerman, do you think politically that might be a solution for you to promote the idea of of actually much more happening on the Mexican side of the border?
4: The US currently has one embassy and either eight or nine consulates in Mexico. And I think that it would be a step in the right direction to let Central American asylum seekers apply for refugee status at the U.S. consulates in Mexico before approaching the U.S. I think that's a very good way to alleviate people crossing the border, illegal traffic, and, yeah, working with Mexico and letting people stay near the centers while their applications are put forward. People need to be detained. I think that's an excellent solution that could be bipartisan. But speaking back to the last point that I think everyone agreed on the panel was well, the the UN needs to come up with this solution, the EU is this. I mean, I think back to our point before that about why are people so fearful about immigrants, it's because you have people in Brussels dictating to you in your country, you have to take X amount of people, which I think it just plays into people's fears when you put these rights into, I mean, setting up basic rights is one thing, but dictating law immigration quotas from an authority higher than your country, I think really makes people frightful.
0: Astra the German experience would certainly suggest that that's the case, that people want these decisions to be
2: made as close to home as possible. Well, but as I mentioned before, you also at the same time have those who are saying, well, we actually do want a European solution on this. And uh, the challenge is that there hasn't been one in in over three years. And I can understand that there's also frustration on this. And the reason why we're now seeing movement um, before this council meeting at the end of June is, I I would say, uh, paradoxically, because um, our interior minister has put a pressure on Merkel. Because had you asked me two weeks ago, what would, what's the outcome of the European Council meeting, I would have been uh, yeah saying that probably not much, um, and that we would have just waited another time to figure out, well, what are the political policy options on the table. But we have come to a deadlock here. And so I think, yes, I, I mean, the questions of solidarity is something that is posed. And it, was it the most diplomatic, how Merkel proceeded uh, in 2015, and how the, the qualified majority voting was implemented? No, I think there could have been probably better ways diplomatically to deal with that, also with concerns of Eastern European countries. However, we have to understand that this is something where um, it will not go away, and um, its migration or refugee issues are not a problem to be solved. It's an issue to be managed, as they say, and... The-
0: Veadestra, if I can bring you in.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to to clarify how the the Brussels
3: processings and decision making procedures work. Um, The relocation decisions, I mean, relocation was actually the scheme that was implemented in 2015 and 16 to alleviate pressures from Italy and Greece when the refugee crisis, right? And uh, the decision, as Astrid was saying, was adopted by majority Ministers,
0: it's government. It's governments.
3: Yeah, it was a council decision. It was two council decisions. Um, But
0: nevertheless, the the question of the public perception stands. There is this idea that it's being imposed from on high. That's the difficulty, isn't it?
3: But that's how I mean how things are miscommunicated. Mm -hmm. This isn't true. It's not that quotas have been imposed from above. They've been. Collegially agreed upon by the collegian of ministers of interior and 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 the heads of government in the council.
0: I want to think about something slightly different for a moment, if I may. This idea of actually opening up legal routes for people who want to move countries. What are the practical difficulties, especially if you're a refugee of trying to find a legal route? I think, Violetta, you earlier you were saying there are no visas for refugees. What about the idea of getting documents and things? What are the practical obstacles of trying to make a a legal journey out of your situation?
3: Um, It's actually very, very difficult. I mean, we are accustomed to, I mean, in, in Western countries to have ID cards or passports when we travel around. But this is not something that most of the world's population are in hold of. So... That's one of the problems. Many people of those escaping do not have any papers. If they have them, sometimes they would leave them behind. I mean, this is not something that you would consider a priority, probably. Or they can be retained by smugglers and traffickers along the way. The fact that there are no visas for refugees compounds the whole situation because then they are left with no other opportunities, but to engage with smugglers and traffickers to reach safety.
0: Drew, do you accept that view of of how refugees behave? Or do you think some people game the system?
4: For sure, some people game the system. But I think it all relates back to the fact of, you know, I don't even know if we have time to go. It's a whole nother dimension. But I, I think this all really relates back to the fact of the welfare state. Refugees often aren't fleeing to the safest place possible. They are going to places that are very safe, Germany, U.S., Sweden, but there's plenty of safe countries along the road. I mean, you, you don't really hear of many refugees wanting to go to Eastern Europe or areas in Mexico that are safer. So a lot of this all comes back to gaming the welfare state, and I think the best way, in my opinion, one of the best ways to solve the refugee crisis is to really start dismantling The welfare state. That's another whole question. That's that's another hour. (laughs) But interestingly, Rithla, uh,
1: you know, it is a whole other question. But there is actually new research that I've been conducting in the Middle East, focusing on immigrants who wish to come to Europe. And we ask them what is driving their destination preferences and we use an an interesting design that allows us to distinguish them. And what we find is that an interest in in accessing the welfare in European countries, while definitely a factor, is up there in in, in importance with a concern for entering into democracies and accessing employment. And when we actually – Divide the data and break down the data. What we find is that those who are interested in welfare are often people who are, higher, are more higher educated. Uh, they're, they're middle educated and middle income. They're precisely the people who are unlikely to actually need the welfare state. So the desire for welfare is much very similar to the way that Europeans or Americans think about welfare as an insurance policy. It's not the driver.
3: And if I can add something very, very quick, actually, um, refugees, as per the 51 Convention, are entitled to all of those things that we are now saying they shouldn't access and so on, and they shouldn't be drivers or pull factors. We should not characterize them like that. They are rights in their own right. And they've been legally recognized as such in the 51 Convention and all the international human rights law documents. Um, So when we speak about safety, not dying—it's not enough. I mean, safety, according to UNHCR, and you know the legal authority that, that that is available, comprises a host of different other guarantees. So the right to life is one, but a dignified life—it's a whole other category of of, of protection that should. Be provided to those in need.
2: There are new proposals because you also asked as well what can be done or can there be other uh, policy um, on the horizon? And this is where this is where you have seen that you have special economic zones, for example, in, in countries like Jordan where there are some also researchers trying to move the debate in a different way and saying, well, look, yes, they want uh, to have access to livelihood, to jobs, etc. But let's also move the jobs to the areas where the refugees are and try to develop economic zones and economic opportunities. And uh, I think this is something that we definitely need to look into and give more credit to.
0: We've talked a lot about controlling refugees and, and other migrant flows at borders. But let's take a broader view about immigration more generally. What is it like to take tough policy decisions on an issue like this? Well, someone who had to do just that is Liam Byrne. He's a Labour MP here in the UK. And he served as Minister for Borders and Immigration. And he led an overhaul of the UK's immigration system when he was in government. Let's hear what he had to say.
7: So you're basically challenge is as an immigration minister that no one really wants the door wide open uh, and no one wants it fully shut so the judgment you've got to make is just how far open is the door so you've got to uh, step up to your obligations to refugees and asylum seekers that's the kind of number one thing but then you've basically got to do a couple of things you've got to Put in place a kind of rational process to ensure that your country is able to draw in the skills that you need from abroad. So when I was the immigration minister, we introduced a point system that was based on the advice from a migration advisory committee, a bit like an independent advisory group. But the second thing you've got to do is you've got to think about how people are able to earn their way to citizenship. So... Again, no one really wants to kind of give newcomers a blank check, if you like. They want to make sure that they're making an effort to learn to speak the language, they're paying in, and it's only once they've paid in that they can get the full rights of citizenship. So those are basically the three things you've got to do.
0: But even changes like that, a balancing act like that, is it enough in the face of the kind of rising numbers of people that are inevitably perhaps moving around the globe now, is that enough to satisfy the concerns of your public? Well, I think it's challenging right now because you've
7: obviously got the biggest movement of people into Europe since the Second World War. So the numbers of people moving around are unprecedented in modern peacetime. And that's why Europe has actually got to think much more clearly about how it shares the burden of accommodating refugees and those who need safety and sanctuary in Europe. Actually, Britain has been very bad at stepping up to those obligations. But, you know, my own view is that that there's something else that needs to go alongside that, which is that there's got to be some kind of reform of free movement in Europe, because in the UK, certainly it was antipathy to those old free movement rules that I think was the biggest factor in people voting for Brexit.
0: British MP Liam Byrne, who was also a former immigration minister. Drew Lickerman, in a sense, would one big change you could make to immigration systems be just to let more people in legally?
4: Well, the US right now, Congress really needs to work on serious immigration reform. reform. I think that's really what's frustrating the American people about Congress the most. Um, But on immigration reform, no, I do agree with that. I think I'm, I wouldn't say I actually fit very well in the Democrat or the Republican view on immigration, I, you know, I, this goes back to my comment about the welfare state. I think if someone wants to come to the US, contribute to society, and get a job, I, I if they present their case, well, I think, yes, they should be allowed to come work in the US. I think. The but US, ha, but it, how many? At what point? You know, what's the number? What's the magic number? I don't really like quotas. I don't think quotas in immigration really make sense. So it's, it's
0: Well, you have to have a, if you have a, have a policy, you have to have a
4: number, don't you? No, I think it should be more of a case by case basis. I don't think there should be any maximum number. I think if if there's a lot of people that are clearly coming to work and they're not going to abuse our welfare system, which in the US right now it's tough the first, first first few years to get welfare, but extending that so if you're coming you're not getting welfare but you're coming to contribute to society, I think that's meaningful. But at the moment right now, I don't the US immigration system is just so flawed between random diversity visa by chain migration. So the US right now is favoring someone who you win the random visa diversity lottery? You randomly put in, you win it, and then you know it's favoring that person's third cousin over someone like I said. Who they want to come to the U.S. They want to be a meaningful member of society. Just, They're not going to abuse the welfare system. Justin,
0: guess that uh, lottery system has been widely criticised. But uh, you heard Liam Byrne there making the case for a points-based system, which was introduced to some extent in the UK. It's used in Australia in Canada. What are the advantages and perhaps limitations of a system like that?
1: Yeah, the points-based system was introduced in Canada in the 1960s uh, in 70s in, in response to what was effectively a race-driven policy in Canada but also in Australia and the United States hitherto. And it's done quite well for those countries in being able to select immigrants effectively the way universities select candidates for admission. The reason why Drew doesn't really know where the Democrat or the Republican view is is because no one really knows what the Democratic view or Republican view is. On the Republican side, they're pulled increasingly to the right, but it's also a Draconian view that is uh, that is questionable on humanitarian grounds that alerts their moderates and annoys them on the democratic view they 're being pulled to the left, which is increasingly advocating for something akin to open borders, even though that 's not what they, really what they mean they just don 't really know what they mean and, and the center again is looking for a more managed response. Points-based systems really offer a very interesting perspective here. And the reason why is it's not just about economics that may uh, validate or qualify an immigrant for admission. You can also admit someone based on points granted for languages that they speak, for time spent in the country, for previous visits in which they left on time. You can uh, advantage someone if they have family present or demonstrate. So you
0: could make it a fairer system is what you're saying.
1: You could make it a fairer system, but one that not only views merit in the terms of labor views it in the sort of full scope of humanity.
0: AstraZeneca in the context of Europe, then, is reform of free movement almost inevitable?
2: To add to the last debate, because of course this is something the the point-based system or admission um, is something that uh, a lot of countries are talking about, and it goes to the sentiment that you want to have control and a controlled system, which I fully agree and and fully support, um, which is why the Canadian system in a way is working well because there's actually it's a quite a strict model. On the other hand, it allows for people in the country, people know well who is here is mostly rightfully here, and it allows also different t- type of policies for diversity and inclusion. And I think in 2015, a lot of people felt that there was a loss of control for sure. With a point-based system, however, the, the challenge is that employers uh, and Germany doesn't have a point-based system in that sense, uh, because em- employers are should be the ones also driving the demand. Um, however, a point-based system is so much easier to communicate, and that's a challenge in, in Germany right now. We can't really communicate our immigration laws. And this is why there's a fierce debate, and it's also in the coalition contract, to actually have an immigration law in Germany, even though it's, according to the OECD, one of the easiest countries of your labor migration to to migrate to. To put
1: Canada under the microscope for a second as well, Rithala, what's really uh, instructive about their experience is that they also have, and what's also not very well known, is that they also have an enormous number of temporary migrant visas. So the Canadians actually focus heavily on temporary labor visas that allow immigrants to come in and give them a deadline to then depart. And this is what sort of greases the wheels of a very generous permanent migration system.
0: But that is, in a sense, down to geography, isn't it? It's much harder to get to Canada in any other way other than legally
1: yeah and and what and what it reveals is the way that the United states and and certain European countries effectively are operating in, with a structural dependence on temporary migrant labor that is usually undocumented and it 's because they haven't put into effect an assist a system that acknowledges the value of temporary labor migrants or permanent labor migrants and made it work i mean you could call Los Angeles one of those special economic zones if you wanted to because it 's highly dependent on undocumented labor a variety of levels of society to make it work and be the thriving global city that it is.
0: That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thank you very much to our guests, Drew Lickerman, Justin Guest, Astrid Zebath, and Violetta Moreno-Lax. Thank you all very much. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or indeed any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. And we'd love to hear your thoughts about the programme. You can email us at therealstory@bbc.co.uk. at bbc.co.uk. From me, Ritola Shah and the team, That's it. The real story for this week. Thank you for listening.